Learn from stars and heroes of the Dubai business world. Welcome to the Dubai Business Podcast, produced by Jayid. Now, here's your host, Lucas Krejci. Are you thinking of launching a new e-commerce business right now? Then you should listen to this conversation with Muhammad Shubib. He launched his first internet startup in 1998 in Munich, worked as a CEO for Sukar.com and later on grew one of the largest online travel brands in the region, Tashaval and Al Musafir. Now he's a CEO of B2B marketplace Tradelink. It connects global suppliers with the region's markets, opening new opportunities for businesses. During this episode, he will speak about challenges they had to overcome as one of the first B2B e-commerce players in the region, and also why he would be very skeptical about launching just another B2C e-commerce brand. Here's my conversation with Mohamed Shabi. Mohamed, thank you for making time for Dubai Business Podcast. Very glad to have you here. My pleasure. And thank you for inviting me. I would like to start with discussing how did Tradelink uh, react to the COVID-19 crisis? If we uh, go back to, let's say, early March, uh, what were the things you guys had to take care of? So uh, there's a couple of dimensions. First of all, we launched literally at the beginning of this crisis. So we had our beta launch phase um, scheduled for Gulf Food. And Gulf Food was mid of February, 16th to 19th of February, I think. And uh, the verticals that we had chosen to launch with were food and beverage and office supplies. And guess what? When the pandemic hit and the lockdown came, these two sectors basically vanished from the market. So there's, uh, first of all, the first problem that we had to solve is that our launch scope disappeared. And um, that's number one. Number two, we could not, and when you're in build mode, in the early build mode, you're basically in a norming phase for your team. So all of a sudden, the team was not in one room anymore. So mm-hmm. the team getting to know each other and getting to know how to work with each other was a second challenge um, because that was impossible. And the third thing is, you know, being a startup you with, with a hyperscale ambition, what you need to do first and foremost is hire people, find talent and hire people. So we had a challenge that our market vanished. We had a challenge that we could not find talent. So it was much more difficult to find talents. And the third thing is, um, how do we collaborate and get to know each other while working remotely on Zoom? Um, and what we've done is, first of all, we launched another segment, which was health and wellness, which was unplanned. Um, and this health and wellness um, resulted then in a launch campaign called the Care Basket Campaign, where companies could buy care baskets and send it to their people that work from home. Um, that was very well appreciated by the market, very well received. Um, the second thing is we sent out guidelines to our teams in how to work on Zoom and how to make sure that everyone knows what you're doing. And, you know, like uh, early check-ins in the morning, check-outs in the evening, in between a line and send a summary, a written summary so that you're really forced to structure yourself and you're thinking written summary at the end of the day, what have I achieved today? Um, all these things we tried to put in place. And the final thing is finding talents um, we just moved completely to online and, and phone. And so, and, but when, when the crisis hit, I think we were 35 people at the beginning of the lockdown. At the end of the lockdown, we came out with about 69 people. So we hired okay. about 30 to 40 people during the, during the lockdown, which was a pretty good number. Um, but again, like when you have your first day at your job remotely, that's not really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we, we've come through it. So it's, all okay. okay. Today we're doing better than than expected. 
That's great to hear. Well, if we stay around that launch phase, uh, what did change for you there? Was it, uh, did you all of a sudden have to target maybe a little bit different uh, customer segment than you expected? Uh, was this a part of the change as well? Yeah, certainly. Look, if you if you launch food and beverage, it means your launch scope, your launch uh, segment that you want to target is restaurant businesses and uh, probably hospitality, hotels and catering businesses. So there were no more parties, no more events. So there was no more catering. There were no restaurants because everything was uh, locked down and uh, tourism stopped. So hotels locked down as well. There were no hotel restaurants allowed to open. Uh, so that vanished. So what did our target audience become? Our target audience became basically people working from home. Um, and how do you reach these people working from home? You don't reach them through offering them some corporate benefits or some, you know, savings and procurement. No, you, you, you reach them by emotionally reaching them. And this is why we launched this care basket campaign. Said, hey, you care about your people that work from home. So get a care basket, order care baskets, and we, we dispatch them to people's homes. We're a B2B place, but we will help you send your own people a gesture of hope by sending them a nice basket with like, first of all, the elements that are essential like masks and, and, and gloves, but also something that creates a smile on their face, like a bar of chocolate or something like that. Yeah. So this was the idea in the beginning. And, uh, you know, and then slowly off, obviously the, the economy reopened and then restaurants had to reopen. And, you know, and when, when we figured that restaurants are not the people to target them, we like the, the food delivery services were still open. So we targeted food delivery service. We targeted supermarkets that are still dispatching and help them procure and secure items that were not available in the market. Anymore. We source them globally. Are you looking for learning something new while working from home? Sign up to one of our digital marketing workshops. In a few days, you can learn how to launch Facebook and Instagram ads or how to advertise your business in Google search. Head to jai.co to find out more. You're listening to the Dubai Business Podcast, produced by Jayid. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if we fast forward those seven, eight months to today, very uh, trade link today compared to those early days? Uh, what's the trade link's primary segment today compared to what were your expectations at the beginning of the year or at the end of Q1, let's say? So when we launched, we planned to be big in food and beverage as our first segment. And we're very big in food and segment. So we already have a good name in the sector. Um, so this was ex where we are now, we, we exceeded our plan. So whatever plan we had in terms of achievements, in terms of sales, in terms of customers that we wanted to reach to, um, we've exceeded these numbers already. So our annual target has already been, been achieved. Um, and in addition to, uh, to food and beverage, we also are penetrating office supplies. We are in, so food and beverage, office supplies, health and wellness, and we're launching a beauty segment now. Um, we already have customers in this segment, we're formalizing it and launching it officially. Mm -hmm. um, so these are the, the four segments now that we're in, and it's, it's, I wouldn't say perfectly in line with our expectation, it's more than our expectation. Okay, amazing. Uh, well, one topic I would definitely wanted to discuss is uh, B2B e-commerce, because this is pretty much a new thing in a market. Uh, many people are kind of not sure how to approach it, or if you speak with uh, people who are doing a B2B or procurement on the company side, very often like uh, they can't really imagine doing it online. So how do you see that e-commerce is different on B2B versus uh, the traditional B2C side? There's a couple, couple of differentiators. The number one difference is when you do B2C, you need to reach plenty of customers through mass media, right? 
when you're good, you're personalized. When you're good, you micro-segment and then you micro-target. But usually what you need to do is you need to spend a lot of money and compete with a lot of people because it's consumer segment mm-hmm. to get a share of, of their view, basically. You need to get the share of their attention, and that's very, very difficult. The value add you have is you help them buy a product at a cheaper price, usually. Right? That's pretty much everything that you offer. The same product at a cheaper price than, than something else. Now, when you talk about B2B, first of all, you can't do mass media. So the acquisition side of things is much more difficult because you need to find people in the right mindset when they are at work. And how do you target, for example, a small restaurant business that is not connected to the internet? Yeah. Or how do you target a corner store supermarket? Right? You need to get to these people in a different way. And usually there's a much bigger combination between offline and online when you do B2B. That's one. Mm-hmm. So you will have a sales team out of the ground. You will have offline media like out-of-door advertising. You will have things like flyers that you that you give out. At the same time, you will have technology means um, like advertising when they're on the mobile, advertising when they're on the iPads or, or Android phones or something like that, right? So um, that's that's the key differentiation in um, in acquisition. The second thing that you have is when you deal with businesses and you do sourcing and procurement for businesses, you go deep into the business processes. It's not a simple decision of you know what I've seen this piece of whatever. And I want to buy it, and it's a decision. I know it's hundred dollars. I'll buy it for hundred dollars. No, it is much more profound because what you have is you have someone doing research, someone doing the negotiation, someone closing the deal, someone paying for the deal. Then you have the warehouse people, and then you have the the, the final final decision maker, and you have two to three decision layers at least in between. So, in a nutshell, the sales cycle is much longer than taking an individual decision. Second thing is the impact that you have as a B2B player on businesses is much higher in case something goes wrong um, than when it's B2C. When B2C, anything goes wrong, they just send it back. In B2B cases, if someone has a very urgent need for something and you don't deliver it or you deliver the wrong product, you know they might suffer from revenue loss. They, must, they, they might suffer from, uh, from anything that could lead even to shutting down the business, right? Um, if you have, let's say you have, you have ingredients for food and you send the wrong ingredients no one realized they put it in the food it's done right um so there's there's many more requirements that are much more profound and tap into the business processes okay since uh trading is kind of pioneering this b2b e-commerce side in in the region uh would you say you're kind of teaching those small shops small restaurants small businesses to move their procurement online from the traditional ways they used to buy their things definitely Definitely. There's a lot of people who never heard about sourcing online. Um, the, the, I mean, there was a, a lot of education that happened in the past years through the players like Amazon, etc. Right. Um, but on the business side, people need to understand what is the value add for me. Right. You, you can't imagine supermarkets today, for example, when they purchase their goods, especially these stores, they just go to a retailer, a hypermarket, mm-hmm. and they buy on the hypermarket and then put it on the shelves. Yeah. Or they go to a large wholesale, wholesaler and you know, select the items and buy them and drive back. They lose so much time in the process and they definitely don't buy for the best prices. So if you offer them something where you show them, you know what, first of all, you're going to save time because you don't have to drive around and find your products. You have them right here with you. Second thing is you're going to buy them cheaper. Third thing is when you do repeat buying, you're going to save even more time because you just say rebuy, right? So there's a couple of things initially Um make people open that like wow i didn't know this was possible and then they start using it and then you hook them literally and they keep buying and buying and buying online and that's that's what we're seeing at the moment with our customers the moment you open their eyes to this new field for them new field i mean let's face it it's not a new field it's been going on for 15 20 years worldwide 
Um, but in this area, in this part of the world, it is pretty new. Now, this is small business. Now, when you go to medium and large businesses, people usually are still stuck on what I would say the internet 1.0, right? When, when you have procurement, big, big procurement solutions like SAP or Oracle, yeah. and they're tied to one supplier and they sourced by one supplier and the process is so painful that people almost cry while using the system. And then you show them our SaaS platform and you're like, hey, dude, just go in there, search as if you were searching on a B2C platform. You get the results like on a B2C platform. The only difference now is you can negotiate your order. Right? You can tell the supplier, I'm willing to pay this amount. Supply does you know, but I'm, and then you meet in the middle, you close the deal. You have other tools like auctions, you have reverse auctions, you have tenders, whatever you need, RFQs, you can do on a platform like that without having to integrate and spend millions of dollars in integration of a system um, with your existing system that is anyway so slow and so painful that you don't want to use it, right? So we're trying, and I think this is this is one thing that we, we put as our core value in developing our product. We want to bring a delightful B2C-like experience to B2B customers. So the education becomes easier when they see, oh, it's something I'm used to. It's called whatever, like here in this part of the world, it's probably noon and Amazon. Um, so it pretty much feels like that. And then they're much more inclined to try us out. Uh, this seems like a very common struggle for probably more tech startups uh, who are introducing something new to the market, something which is disrupting the processes which has been there for, for a while. And probably you, you've done it before, you told people to buy fashion online first and to uh, buy their travel tickets online now, uh, since you're teaching this uh, B2B uh, or businesses to buy things online. What's the important part of this when you as a startup are becoming this disruptor or bringing this new approach to the market? Um, I think, that, first of all, I don't like the word disruption. I know it's one of these buzzwords that are completely penetrating the market these days, but um, disruption means that we assume that businesses are incapable of running their own business and we have to disrupt them because they're not good. No, businesses are running their business. What we need to do is we need to lift them up to a different communications medium. Mm -hmm. right? They're still doing their business. You can question whether it's the most efficient way of doing it, but we don't go there with the arrogance of saying, look, guys, everything you do is wrong. What we say is, hey, guys, look, You're doing something, we're taking exactly what you're doing and we're augmenting it to the digital world. But okay. we leave the process as is. We're not optimizing your process yet. Let's do exactly the things. If you have a manual bit, we leave it manual. We just do the communication between the two manual elements. We do that actually on, on the digital platform. Um, so when you have this approach and you say, look, I'm picking you up where you are. I'm bringing you to my world, but I'll leave you as you are. Um, it becomes much easier for people to adjust and adapt. And then you can look when they when they develop the trust because it's business to business, right? People need to start trusting you much more. When they start trusting you, you can then become a partner in, hey guys, look, I have this solution, this solution, this solution, this solution that could improve this existing manual process that you have. And ultimately all I want to do is I want to save your time because that's the most valuable thing for people. Everyone thinks, okay, Absolutely. people want to save cost. People want to save time. If you work 60 hours a day, you want to work uh, a week, you want to work 40 hours a week to get to see your children. So if I give people this benefit, they will be grateful forever, right? Because I give them family quality time instead of work time that is administrative work. Yeah. I think this is the approach that we that we have developed.
So rather augmenting than disrupting or trying to uh, change totally the current process because yeah. that's usually painful, right? And people don't yeah. really want to want to do it, go out of that. And I learned it the hard way, by the way, if I may say, because I've been a strategy consultant for years, right? So um, as a strategy consult, a strategy consultant, usually they come into a place, let's say a large telco that has been there for 40, 50 years or even more. You come in there and you pretend that you're much better than them at doing their own business. And you pretend that this thing is going bankrupt if you don't come in there and help. Now, reality is they have survived 45 years and they have excelled 45 years. and They've created profits 45 years. You might carve out more, but without you, they would also survive. So if you remove this arrogance of me coming from outside, I'm capable of running your business better than you can. Right. Um, I think if you take this out of the equation and then you focus on, you know what, I'm going to be the one listening to you and figuring out how you do things. So you start trusting me and then, you can ask me, I want you to come to me and say, hey, how can you carve out a little bit time of my process? But I want it to remain your process. I don't want you to adopt my process. I think this is a complete complete shift in mindset of, of how you approach these problems. Yeah, I believe it is. And very often I've worked at SaaS before and uh, yeah, very often we've had like this mindset of, yeah, we need to really change the way they're doing it because it's taking so much time for them and it's not automated, et cetera, et cetera. And we really, because we're, kind of uh, in love with our product. We know how great it is. So we want to like really yeah, disrupt, revolutionize, change everything. Uh, but as you said, probably doing it step-by-step step is way more rational approach and uh, approach which will be way better accepted by the customer. Yeah. Great. All right. Um, what would you say, Mohamed, uh, nowadays are kind of the business's biggest challenges when it comes to sourcing products? I think at the moment, um, businesses are in survival mode completely all around the globe, by the way. So the probably biggest necessity is to optimize the cash cycle, which means they need to be able to earn money before they pay money, right? So everyone we talk to, no matter what size of business, tells you we need to have payment terms, mm-hmm. right? So all buyers are looking for payment terms. They want to pay in 90 days after the purchase, after they receive the goods. At the same time, you look at suppliers and they're like, we can't give payment terms. We need the cash, right? Why? Exactly. Because every, every supplier, every manufacturer actually produces products. So they buy ingredients to produce stuff or they'll buy raw material to produce stuff. So they have paid someone else before and they need to get the cash back as, as, as quickly as possible. Now, the big boys usually have very, very profound banking relationships. The problem occurs when you look at the SME segment because the SME segment by bank, the the banking system in the MENA region, unfortunately, is not really focused on adding value to SMEs um, when, 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 when you really need this value, right? And today, you will have so many smaller companies, medium-sized companies, that just can't get the cash optimized. So what ends up mm-hmm. happening is they find one distributor, for example, that sees an opportunity. He gives them a credit line, and then they're forced to buy from this distributor because they have a credit line there. The prices on average are between 5 to 15% higher than anyone else in the market. But this guy gives you a credit line. Now, you pay 5 to 10% more, plus the credit line costs interest. So yeah. you're basically ripped off on two sides of, of, the, of the game. Um, but you're locked up. You're locked up. You can't leave because you, you don't get any payment terms elsewhere and you need to make money. So you start turning around basically items and turning around money. You buy at a high cost and you sell. And then what ends up happening in the long term is... Basically, your profitability diminishes until a level where your profitability is negative. 
when your profitability is negative, you go out of market. Now, people don't realize that this is the biggest risk at the moment. And, and the risk that we have because of the pandemic is really this grassroots risk. People are not getting enough cash into the company, but they are forced to give out cash immediately. And this is not sustainable. You need to find a solution for that on a, on a, on a regional level, I think. Mm-hmm. So is this, uh, do you think like, um, is uh, fixable in a kind of startup environment? Can you imagine some like fintech startup uh, kind of helping in this challenge? Because that has been challenged for SMBs for years uh, in this market. Do you, you don't need a fintech for that. You just need you just need TradeLink for that. So, <laughs> what we've done is we've <laughs> we've set up a program where we basically um, we provide we provide these payment terms to anybody who deals on our platform. So let's assume you're a buyer, you're a restaurant, you want to buy items. We can give you one blanket payment term, let's say 90 days, but you can use it with a credit line, let's say up to 50,000 dirhams. You can use it on any supplier that is on the platform. You're not tied to one supplier. So you still are allowed and, and capable of comparing prices and get the best price for yourself and find the right products um, while benefiting from a financial service, which is payment terms or credit, the rolling credit, that's what we call it, or payment terms, buy now, pay in 90 days, um, which is something that really activates the market and helps people actually remain in business and grow their business. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh Mohammed, you have as a, as a basically marketplace, you have two sides of business. You need to get the sellers on your platform and then you need to get the buyers on the platform. And uh, very, very often the one doesn't work uh, without another. How did you tackle this at the beginning? How did you get sellers on the platform at the moment you had no buyers? And at the same time, how were you getting the first buyers at the moment uh, you maybe didn't have enough portfolio on the platform? Um, the... The trick is that you get people from within the industry. Whatever industry you tackle, you need to get players within the industry that know both sides. Mm-hmm. So we started with food and beverage and we got someone from the food and beverage industry that was, I think, 12 years within this industry in multiple countries. So with a very good global network of suppliers and buyers, um, has been here a, a really in business development for the food and beverage industry for years. So knows the players here in the, in the regional market as well. So this way, what you do is you really, you start building supply initially by talking to the people that you know and say, hey, we have a new way of selling. It costs you nothing. So people don't lose anything if they give us, if they list their product basically with us, right? And then once you have a critical mass, then you start reaching out to a couple of people. And then what happens is I go to someone and I say, hey, we have this platform. And then they say, we need these following 10 products. They're not on your platform. Then what we do is we source these products literally within one or two days. We find two, three suppliers that can provide these products at a cheaper price onboard these suppliers on behalf of the customer and do it. So there's a couple of things that you do. First, you go to suppliers that you know. Then you go to buyers that you know. Then you get to the suppliers of these buyers and onboard them. And then these suppliers have buyers as well, and they push them onto the platform because it's cheaper for them to sell on the platform than physical sales to key accounts, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the way you build marketplace. Any marketplace, and you start with Amazon like 20-something years ago, that's how they started they actively created the market by talking to both sides of the, mm-hmm. of the market. Okay. Uh, well, marketplace being very kind of, uh, I say it's a trendy thing for people who want to start their e-commerce, uh, given how much Amazon promoted this idea uh, from day one, they're trying to become this, uh, this marketplace. What often probably don't see is this business development part of uh, part of this job, because it's then not a typical e-commerce uh, type of model. 
uh, how critical is to get the right or how to get the right business development person uh, for this kind of job? Again, it's a combination of a couple of things, right? Number one is ideally you get industry experts. Why? Because when you deal with a very specific vertical, like, like food and beverage, people need to trust the person. So it's personal relationships. You need to get people with an existing network in a segment so they can onboard the segment in a much easier way. When you are a, a new face in a segment and you don't speak that language, and they tell you about something like logistics cool chain, and you just don't have a clue. Mm -hmm. They will figure that out very quickly. They don't trust you, and then they don't trust the business that has hired you. But one critical element is when you have segments like food and beverage or segments like health and, and wellness or beauty, you need to have people from within them. When you have generic things like office supplies, then what you need probably is people that know how to open doors, regardless what door it is, because office supplies is bought by anyone from a school to a large corporate, right? Everything. Yeah. And everybody needs office supplies. So this is different qualities of people. Now, the first thing that we look at when we hire people is you need to have integrity in the character. That's the most important thing that you need. Um, once you have this integrity, um, you look at personality, right? And personality usually means um, you need people that can communicate, that can understand who they talk to and really figure out you know, what is the need of the person in the market that I'm talking to and, and solve this need for this person? I think that's that's ultimately it. And then you have certain technical skills. And sales skills is a technique that you can learn. Business development and business growth is, is a technique that you can learn. Um, so in a nutshell, it all depends on personality and, and industry expertise. Mm -hmm. Amazing, love that. Uh, how important is then uh, digital marketing in, in your overall mix, given you're kind of dependent on the business development and you mentioned also uh, the, find the traditional marketing. Well, I don't really like the split between traditional and digital. Uh, yeah, if we speak in a, what we call digital marketing channels, how important is that for trading given your B2B platform? First of all, I agree with you. Marketing is marketing is marketing is marketing, period. Right? And I'm a very conservative thinker here. You have the four yes. P's in marketing, and that's what I refer to, right? You need to be right in your pricing. You need to be right in your promotions and your distribution. Um, and, and I think that's that's something that you ultimately need to understand. When you do sales, it doesn't work if you don't have flanking elements of marketing that support your salespeople. Be it the brochure that they have or the, the iPad with the videos they have and with the content that they have, or be it just imagine the following scenario. You have a business developer going to a business tower that wants to open doors and sell office supplies, right? Come join TradeLink because, you know, we want you to buy your office supplies on TradeLink. It's much cheaper for you. It's much better for you, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Now, if someone just knocks the door and say, hey, I want to get you, people might say yes, people might say no. But if the person at the door has seen a TradeLink advertising in the same building downstairs at the elevator door printed on it, I said, ah, yeah, I heard of you. If at the same time this person has been YouTubing the night before or on Instagram and saw a video advertising that was exciting, they're much more inclined to tell him, hey, you know what? You need to talk to this person. I'll hook you up. Right? So marketing helps, period. Right? And I think marketing helps in a way that it creates trust. So there's an element of awareness and there's an element of trust. And I think in B2B, the element of Awareness is much more difficult to achieve than in B2C because you cannot just spray and pray and 
hope that the right people see you, it becomes too expensive. Mm-hmm. And the element of trust is critical. If, if your brand doesn't create a trust, a feeling of trust with the audience that you want to reach, you will fail. Because I think that's, that's crucial in, in a B2B scenario. Now, how do you do that? I think this is the true area where we're pioneering in this region because this, this didn't happen in the region. How, man, how much advertising do you see for B2B when you, when you drive down to Vice Road, for example? Right? Right. It's difficult, right? And it's the same in Saudi and it's the same everywhere. It's very, very difficult there. And you know the ROI on marketing for B2B in this region is, is very, very nascent. Like you don't even have benchmarks that you can look at. Um, and for someone that is, or for a company with a philosophy of being very numbers driven, very uh, you know impact data impact driven. It's very difficult to just say you know what I'm going to spend this amount of money and let's hope it works. Um, because reality is it usually doesn't when you do it this way. Yeah, that's true. Now I feel that uh, there's a there's a misconception that uh, like B 2 B we are marketing to some you know companies institutions. But what people very often forget that in the end for those institutions who are buying or who are the decision makers are the people. And as you mentioned, those people are on YouTube, those people are on Instagram. Yes, we need to do it differently. Uh, we need to approach it differently. But still, if we have these people in mind and we speak to them, then it's just a question of channels we're going to use to reach them, right? Yeah, and you need to understand what state of mind they're at. I think this is also important. Um, I think I think you need to, to grab them in the right moment. And I think this is where the what the challenge is. You need to figure out where are they right now and how can I reach them best and what type of communication do I use in order to reach them best. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Mohamed, what's next? Uh, we are at the start of Q4 business, uh, business quarter for everyone. Quarter, everyone is now, I believe, uh, looking with a hope that it might be the light at the end of the tunnel or at least the direction towards the end of the tunnel of 2020. Uh, what is in there for TradeLink? Well, I think I think we're, we're already looking at 2021 and gear up for 2021. It's going to be an exciting year. First of all, all the we, we hope that all this pandemic stuff will will go into the right track. Now that uh, especially the medication and the vaccination part is is probably in its final steps to to have some impact. Um, the second thing for us is, you know, when we when we launch, we launch with a very clear scope of saying UAE only and very limited segments. And our target is to become a generalist marketplace for B2B. Generalist means like pretty much everything that you want to find to buy for your company, you will find on trading, mm-hmm. no matter what. So the question for us is in what sequence do we go vertical by vertical and which vertical is next? That's something we're looking at right now. So what are the next two, three, four verticals that will open up? And the second thing for us that is key for 2021 is what markets do we open? So there's Saudi Arabia is the, the natural next when you open open shop in UAE. I think that's that's critical. And then GCC, we're looking at other countries such as Pakistan, Turkey, Egypt. We're looking at North Africa in general. Some African countries as well make sense, like Kenya, like Uganda, like Ghana, like Nigeria. Um, so it's just a matter of really laying out these plans for the next uh, three to four years to figure out how we can scale this business to, to become really a business you, you know, It's always there. You, you would always think, oh, this has always been here in the Middle East, right? That's pretty much our plan. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mohammed, uh, give us an advice. How do you CEO if you're deciding now which vertical you guys need to go next? Uh, what's your process kind of to make that uh, decision? Because there's almost unlimited options and it can be very hard to pick the right one. I think the first thing that I, and I'll give you literally the three things that I do. First of all, I look at data, I look at industry and trade data. So what is the trade volumes? per segment in what countries. And then you dig deep into the sub-segments as well and take a look at what are these industry segments. That's the number one thing. The number two thing, I look at other players worldwide that are much more mature than us. Like when you look at the Alibabas, mm-hmm. the DHGs, the Mercatios, the Amazon businesses, whatever they call, these guys had done it before. And I firmly believe that these guys had smart people, right? Yep. So at one point they have figured out, you know, this makes sense, this doesn't make sense, right? So. To, to give you a, a very, very striking example, you could do machineries, large industrial machines, or you could do apparel fashion, mm-hmm. right? For machineries, you probably have an average value of, of, of item that you sell of, let's say, half a million dollars. For apparel, you probably have $5. What do you do? Yeah. Then you need to look. So that's something that you need to look at. And then you need to look at the demand structure, like who would buy that? How many sellers are there? And it's a global market. So I always assume there's infinite sellers um, and there's buyers in this region. So how many buyers in this region would purchase these items or this industry segment? And then from there, you try to do an analysis of, okay, how many transactions would, would then happen over a certain period of time? Is, is there different layers of distribution? So is there an inefficiency in the market where basically money goes out to people in a system that don't add incremental value? And they just move boxes from left to right. And when you have inefficiencies, that's a very clear signal that you can add value as an online platform. I think this is the, the number one thing. And ultimately, so you look at data, you look at benchmark, you look at the detailed structure of demand and supply and the different layers of the value chain. And then you listen to your gut. And if I had to give you a percentage, I would say 50% of my decision-making is gut. I believe that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, Indian Mohammed, uh, many people in our audience and many of our listeners are now either already working on their e-commerce or are thinking that uh, this might be the right time really to start their e-commerce. Uh, what would be your advice to those people who are starting their e-commerce journey? You need a lot of cash. You don't have cash, don't do it. I think that's the number one. The number two, There are certain, I, I, don't, I don't believe that you will be successful in B2C. So I don't know if you talk B2C versus B2B. If you talk B2C, think hyper-personalization is the way to go. So hyper-customization and personalization is the way to go. If you do standard trade stuff, uh, uh, mass, uh, generalist, there's enough players in the market that can outpower you like this. So you need to find a niche where you can hyper-customize stuff. Yesterday, I just saw an advertising of a the, the first, I don't know, carbon 3D printed uh, bicycle or something mm-hmm. like that. Fully customized to your size, fully customized to your length. You know, all these new phones, they have these 3D scanners now. So you can you can literally scan your body and people could customize fashion based on the measurements the phone takes. So this stuff has not been possible, let's say, five years ago. So I think it will open open new fields. So I wouldn't do the standard, to summarize, I wouldn't do the standard stuff that seems so obvious. 
So we don't need another Amazon, if you're clear, right? Uh, we don't need another one that sells baby items. We don't need another one that sells sports items. What we need is probably, you know, I want, I want to create my own brand to sell it, for example, on Amazon. As, as a mama working from home that cannot go to the office for years after, after giving birth, and, but you want to work, you can order stuff that is hyper-customized and then sell it to, be, to, to consumers, right? So that's something that we focus on. We want people actually to buy from us to be able to sell on existing online platforms. But that's probably a smarter way of doing e-commerce than creating the next, the next big thing in e-commerce where you need to spend so many millions of dollars before you become profitable, if you become profitable. Now, just to give you a feeling, I think the capital efficiency of B2B businesses versus B2C e-commerce business is roughly, I think, four times, if I'm not mistaken, which means if you want, if you have to spend 100 to make a business profitable in B2C, you only spend 25 to 30 to make a business profitable in B2B at the same size, at the same so scale in the end. So, so why would you go into B2C now when you have very strong players already that have infinite cash? It doesn't make sense. The only people benefiting would be Google and Facebook with the advertising revenue um, because it's an auctioning and they will drive the prices up to, to boost you out of the market. So it doesn't make sense. When, when you go into mass customization, glass is printed and customized to your face shape, etc. There's so many ideas that you can do in customization. 3D printing is a very big thing. If you can crack that and, and really create a supply chain that reaches consumers with products that are unique, maybe that's the way to go. At least that's what I would look at next. Um, if uh, 10 years from now, I decide that what I'm doing right now is boring. <laughs> All right. Uh, I believe this is the right ending. Mama, thank you very much for your time and sharing your thoughts with us. Pleasure, Lucas. Thank you for having me. Take care. This was the Dubai Business Podcast produced by Jayid. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and on social media at jayid.co slash podcast. That's J-A-Y-I-D dot co slash podcast.